Okay, friends, um, invite you to find your seats, and then I draw your attention to the. <laughs> invite you to find your find your seats, and I draw your attention to our. Uh, we haven't done these in a while since uh, pre uh, pre COVID. Um, I don't ever want to say that word in a worship service ever again. Um, but but before the whole pandemic or everything, we were uh, we had institute class where we were going through our. Uh, the New City Catechism, and we were incorporating that into our, our Sunday worship times as part of our profession of faith time. And so this morning, we're going to uh, kind of go back a little bit from where we were, but resume doing this. And we're going to do question 18 and 19. And what we'll do is we'll do the kids' version first, and then the adults' version second. And today, we're going to do two questions. Uh, the question 18 asks this. Will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? And kids, we say, no, God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them both in this life and in the life to come. Now, adults, we answer the question this way. No, every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, goodness of God and against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Happy. <laughs> that doesn't sound like good news. Kids, does that sound like good news? No, not so much. Adults, does that sound like good news? Well, let's do question 19 as well. Is there a way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Kids, yes, God reconciles us to himself by a redeemer. And adults, we would say, yes, to satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for our sin by a Redeemer. Amen. And let's pray. God, as we turn uh, now to hear your word, we thank you for the truths here that we just recited from our lips, that we deserve just judgment for our sin and for our idolatry. But we thank you that you sent a Redeemer for us. We thank you that you did this out of your mercy and your grace. And it's that Redeemer that, uh, it's in the name of that Redeemer that we gather together here as your people to sing praise to him and adoration to him, but also to hear from his word. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us in this time as we open up your scriptures that you would speak to us through it in preparation for us sharing the Lord's table. So God, be with us in this time and fill us with your Spirit as we do this. In Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
Um, we're going to take a, a little detour here from our Titus series, and I know we've only been in the series one week, um, uh, but this is, in a way, it's a follow-up on the message that we, uh, we had two weeks ago on why we do what we do. Remember, we went through our, our liturgy, and we looked at um, the various parts of our uh, liturgy, like uh, our, the revelation of God, God coming to us. We respond in adoration. We respond in adoration and uh, worship, but then we're also confronted with our sins, so we do con- time of confession. Uh, and then we hear the word from the Lord, his, this absolution, the, not an absolution in some sort of sacramental s- sense that's dispensed by some sort of priest, but the absolution that comes from the message of the gospel itself. And then we saw some of the other things that we do in our worship time, like uh, supplication, praying of uh, the scriptures, professing our faith, uh, hearing from God's word. But in that message, I, I kind of uh, mentioned in passing part of this absolution where we would hear the gospel preached to us. Um, I also mentioned, and this is also where we will do the Lord's Supper, and I will talk about that later. Um, many of you may remember it. It may have been far enough along in the message where maybe some of you are drifting off. But this Uh, I I had said, I want to deal with the Lord's Supper in a fuller way. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I can't unpack the fullness of the Lord's Supper today. um, But I would like for us to to have, uh, my my goal today is for us to have, uh, hopefully, a corrected understanding on what this means. And how Christ is present in it and why we take it. Or more precisely, what is happening while we take it? So, uh, so if you would, turn with me to the scripture passages listed on the screen here. Matthew chapter 26. And these will be our scripture um, passages this morning. And also 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 34. So Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26 through 30. And then we will turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17 through 34. So if you were there, Matthew 26, 26. And the setting here is, is Jesus celebrating uh, this Passover with his disciples. And he says, in, they're up in the upper room. And he says, now as they were, they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the many, for, uh, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Why do you not, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What then shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. But that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. So these passages are dealing with this institution, this ordinance, or some will call a sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And much debate, much division has come from the very distinct views about the Lord's Supper and what it means. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to begin with a brief sketch on the various views uh, and then show you the right one. It's kind of funny, right? Okay, right? Um, uh, I want, okay, what I mean to say is, boy, that just bombed. Uh, what I mean to say is, well, I want to give you the view that I believe to be the right one. I still bombed. Okay. Uh, okay, so I used to work with somebody, and one time she said, you, you think you're always right, don't you? And I laughed, and I said, well, of course I do. Who doesn't? Who thinks that they're wrong all the time? Uh, the views you hold, you hold those views because you, ho you hold them because you think that you're right. I've been wrong, and I've had my views corrected and changed, but I changed them to what I think is right, right? Don't you? Okay. All right. Uh, so I'm going to give you the right view today. 
But let me begin here with a couple of uh, terms here. One, uh, terms that you might be familiar with in, in relation to this, this uh, thing that we call the Lord's Supper. Um, one is communion. Okay? It's also referred to as communion, as communion with our Lord. Another one is uh, Eucharist. How many of you have heard the term Eucharist, right? And that comes from the, the Greek word for thanksgiving, which we actually read when Jesus gave thanks. So uh, that's Eucharisto. This is giving thanks. And so it's referred to as the Eucharist, more in like a Catholic settings. Uh, there's other terms that are used for it. The breaking of bread, the cup of the Lord, the table of the Lord, as we'll see in, in some verses we'll look at here in a moment. Uh, and then the Lord's Supper. That's the one I typically use when referencing it. But these are all, we're all describing the same thing. The Lord has given us this supper. He says, and he refers to the elements that he hands them. This is my body and this is my blood. So the question is, how is Christ present in this Lord's Supper? Here's a couple of views. One's the Roman Catholic view called transubstantiation. Sounds like a big fancy term right? Transubstantiation. What this means is those elements, the substances of bread and wine actually are transformed through this priestly act into the body and blood of Christ. Okay, so those are actually the body and blood of Christ. So you see the transubstantiation, the substance has now been transformed. And uh, this is practiced in the church that just by doing it, let's call it ex opere operato, it's just by the work of doing it that um, grace is performed. Now, the amount of grace is dispensed in proportion to the disposition of the one who's taking it, they would say. But nevertheless, it's a, a means by which grace is given, and it's through the actual transforming of those uh, substances. That's the, the Roman Catholic view. But Martin Luther came along during the Reformation, and he, uh, um, he through uh, his reading of the Scripture, rejects this idea, but he still wants to acknowledge that, yes, that Christ is indeed present, um, but instead of the bread actually becoming the physical body and the wine actually becoming the physical wine, um, uh, Christ is present in some kind of a mystical way in or with or under, he says, the bread. And so here's the prefix con. So the, Jesus is con, meaning with. He's with the substances. Another reformer, um, uh, Zwingli, had a, had a different view and was kind of even going further away from Rome. Like Luther, he kind of rejected the idea of this actually being the physical body presence of Christ in the supper. But he takes this to be a very spiritual or memorial kind of sense. So it's a mere, mere sign or a symbol, a memorial, a reminder to remind you of the death of Christ. And that it is a, an act of faith on the part of the one who's taking it. I think Zwingli's kind of right. I think this is probably the way in which this is practiced most often in a lot of evangelical churches is this way. It's kind of a, I, I'm doing this as an act of faith and I'm remembering back 
uh, on Christ's death. To that, I don't disagree. I think it's all of those, I think it's all of what Zwingli says. But Zwingli, I think, stops short in a little incorrect way. So this gives us to the fourth view, which was Calvin's view, which was he agrees with Zwingli, you know, in some sense. He agrees with Luther in another sense, and he, he, he even agrees with the Roman Catholic Church in another sense. He would reject that it, that it actually gets turned into the actual body and blood. But he would say, no, th- this is a symbol, but, but Christ really is truly present here. Yes, it's a memorial, but it's more than the, just a memorial. That Christ has promised to be present in it. And so uh, this is Calvin's view, or was sometimes referred to as a means of grace. A means of grace. And I want to unpack that a little bit for us this morning. The Lord's Supper being not just a memorial, but being a a means of grace. I'm taking this from a a book by uh, Richard Barcelos, um, which is the title. uh, The title of the book is, I have it right here. Uh, the Lord's Supper as a means of grace more than a memory. And I think he is, uh, he is right on uh, here. And some of what I'll address here in a moment uh, comes from insights from, from that book, and I think it's fantastic. But he says this, The Lord's Supper, this is this means of grace view, this more than a memorial view. The Lord's Supper confirms the faith of believers in the benefits of Christ's death. That when we come together and we take the Lord's Supper, it's confirming the faith of believers in the benefits of Christ's death, that it nourishes their souls, that it causes growth in Christ. That's interesting. Partaking in the Lord's Supper as this means that Christ has given us for him to dispense grace to us actually causes us to grow in Christ. That it is a bond and a pledge of the believer's communion with Christ, a little bit of Zwingli's ideas here, and that worthy receivers spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified. And all the benefits, this is key, all the benefits of his death by faith and that Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper. So we are feeding, receiving on Christ crucified and all of the benefits of his death that when we take it, that we are being nourished by this. So it's not merely a sign of my faith although it is that, it's not merely um, a, a memorial of, of something that Christ has done. It is that, but it is much more. It's a tangible, invisible representation of the gospel that when we take it, we are receiving the promises from Christ himself that his benefits that of his death are given to us. Or I'll put it this way, it's a meal Jesus gave us as a means to dispense grace to us. There are several different uh, means of grace, uh, and we addressed some of those when we looked at our, our worship. I think uh, 
prayer is a means of grace, uh, gathering together in fellowship in the church is a means of grace. Uh, all of those are means of grace, but, but usually there's three that kind of stand out in the forefront, and that is the ministry of the word. Baptism is a means of grace, and that's kind of the initiation of believers uh, at the beginning of their Christian life. And then there's an ongoing part, and that's the Lord's Supper. This is a means of grace, which grace is given to his people. And they're usually referred to as the ordinary means of grace, right? Because they involve ordinary things. Water, in the case of baptism. Preaching. Simplistic, simple preaching of God's word. Bread and wine. Staples across the globe throughout world history. So the ordinary means of grace. The Lord's Supper is, is a means of grace. Is it a memorial? Yes. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But it is more than that. It's the means which, which Christ, by the Holy Spirit, present in the gathering of the church, has communion with him. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and is ministering to us now. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And so when we gather to take this, the Holy Spirit is using this means of grace to nourish us and connect us to Christ. Okay? And so let's uh, invite you to, to stay. Hopefully you're right there at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11. I want to back up a little bit. We're very familiar with the uh, passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, the middle part there about the institution of the Lord's Supper. I want to back up a little bit and catch a little of the argument that Paul is making that leads up to that. Paul is dealing with a bunch of issues at the church of Corinth. And man, Corinth was... Um, uh, needed some help. <laughs> the church at Corinth, if you've read Corinth and all of the issues that were going on in Corinth, Corinth needed a lot of help. And as a matter of fact, Paul, if you read through the letter, he goes, now concerning. Okay, now concerning this issue. And I heard that you did this. And so let me, let me talk to you about all of that. And he's having to really correct and work them on some of the things. Um, but I want you to notice back in chapter eight, if you'd flip back a couple of pages, he says, now concerning, right? He says it in the beginning of 6, a beginning of uh, 7. He uses it uh, in the beginning of 12. Uh, but here he says, now concerning food offered to idols. From chapter 8 all the way through the passage that we read in 11, he's a dealing with this issue, and he's kind of bringing in a couple of things that are connected to it. He's dealing with idolatry here. And I think when in, in the middle of that argument, I think we're often familiar with the verses in 11, chapter 11, about the Lord's Supper. But there's something that he says about the Lord's Supper in chapter 10 that he's using as part of his argument against idolatry that says a whole lot about the nature of the Lord's Supper. So look at verses 14 of chapter 10. He's dealing with this issue of idolatry. You've got some people who are part of the church at Corinth, but they were also going to remember Corinth is very close to Athens, very Greek city, lots of altars, lots of temples, lots of Greek gods. And some of the Christians, they were going and participating in 
at the altars. They were going and participating in the uh, sacrificial feasts. There were issues about, do you eat food that was offered to idols, but then now sold in the marketplace? He's dealing with all of those things. Notice what he says in verses 14 through 21 of chapter, um, well, we'll stop a little before that, starting in verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is something he began in verse 1 of chapter 8. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Okay? The cup of blessing that we bless. Is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is that not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Okay, so he's, he's just now brought in, uh, here in verses 16 and 17, he's brought in this idea, and it's clearly references here to the Lord's Supper, okay? And you're sitting here going, wait, why does that have to do with fleeing idolatry? Because look at what he says in the next, the next verses. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Okay. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, very interesting here. Notice the, the words there, participation, in verses 16. It's used twice in verse 16. This is the Greek word koinonia, means fellowship. Communion, deep personal association, deep connections to, between two, uh, two persons. Okay, notice that. So this, when here taking it, the cup of blessing that we bless, is that not participation in the body of Christ? This is a fellowship. This is, this is also the verses that are the backdrop behind the use of the uh, one of the names, communion. Okay, so notice he's saying, when you gather together, you are taking this meal, you are communing with Christ. You are in participation with the body of Christ. When you take that cup, you are participating in the blood of Christ. And this is driven home even more in the argument that he's using here. So he's saying you can't get into involved into idolatry because even as you're going and you're, all, uh, you're, you're attending these uh, pagan Greek temple services and you're eating the meat, you're not just eating the meat. You're participating in it, right? Notice what he says in verse 18. 
Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who ate the sacrifices participants in the altar? Remember our series in Leviticus, right? The, the, the various different offerings and sacrifices. They would have to take a bull or a goat or, you know, and then they would go and offer it. And then there were, at the end, the last one would be a fellowship offering where we, they would take the meat that was burnt on the burnt offering and then they would eat it. And the priest would have some and they would have some. And what Paul is saying here, when you're eating that meat, then you're participating. You become one with the altar. And Paul is saying, if that was true in ancient Israel, then how, how true is it when we're participating in the meal that Jesus gave us? It's a participation. Which is why he's saying, you should not in, uh, be eating the meals at the Greek temples, right? Because notice what he continues to say in verses 19 and 20. What do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no. He goes, but let, let me tell you what I am saying. That what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. What's the assumption there? When you have that meal, you're participating in demons. In all three of these examples that Paul is using here, and he's, again, he's using it in the larger argument against not participating in all idolatry, but the thing that's, uh, that is common with all of them is what you eat in a sacred meal is participating in the thing that that meal symbolizes, right? It's more than a memorial. It's not just taking it and going, I'm remembering what he's done. That would be in violation with the strong words that Paul is saying here. This is participation in it. So this is to be, uh, this is to be uh, um, participation in this meal is participating in with Christ. So I put it this way. If eating the food associated with Israel's worship at the altar meant identification with the altar... And if eating and participation, not just identification, but participation in, union in. And if eating the food associated with pagan and Greek temples meant association and fellowship with demons to whom they were offered, then eating the meal associated with the resurrected and exalted Christ is actual participation in the resurrected and exalted Christ. Amen? If eating this in Israel's altar was, was fellowship in the altar, and if eating it was in pagan temples was fellowship with demons, then eating what Christ has given us is participation in his resurrection and exalted state. So when we take it, we're not just memorializing his broken body and blood poured out for us. We are also participating in his present body and blood that's in at the right hand of the Father in heaven, where all of his blessings then, all every spiritual blessing is poured out from Christ to uh, his people through the Holy Spirit in taking this meal that he's given us. And this is why, okay, hopefully this adds to the seriousness of what happens when we're taking this meal, because it's more than just a memorial. If it was just a memorial, uh, it, it, you could be forgiven for taking it casually. But if it's more than a memorial, 
There's cautions for taking it too casually, which is what Paul does in verse uh, in chapter 11, beginning in 17. I don't commend you guys for how you're behaving. Look at, uh, remember how it is that they're doing. There's divisions among you, and he goes, when you come together, when you're eating the Lord's Supper, you say you're eating the Lord's Supper, but you're so perverting it and distorting it that it's not even recognizable anymore. And he says, each one goes ahead, eats his own meal. One eats all of the bread. Like, can you imagine somebody coming up here and going, oh man, this is good. And then eating all the bread and then drinking all the wine. And those in the back of the line have nothing left. That's what was happening. He goes, you're robbing people of grace. You're robbing people of the means of grace. Go home. That's <laughs> what he says. Go home to do that. Don't you have houses to do that in? They turned it into a party buffet style. And he says, no, 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 no. This, you can't do that. This is, this, is, uh, this is a very serious good thing that's happening here. This is the means of grace that we're participating in with Christ. And if you go and hog it all, you're robbing people of participation in Christ. Also, this meal is to be taken by believers. This is why we usually call this fencing the table, right? Because... Because if participation in the meal means fellowship with, your, your uh, koinonia with the resurrected and exalted Christ, then you better know him savingly. That's, I think, Paul's point here. Examine yourselves, right? Whoever drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. He's not saying... You know, oh, if you had some sort of unconfessed sin and you come to the table, you know, something bad's going to happen to you. Apparently something did bad happen to them, which I won't get into this morning. But, uh, but he is saying, if you don't know Christ savingly, don't take this meal. If you take, if you take the meal at the Greek and pagan altars, you're participating with demons. If you take this meal and you don't know Christ, you are, un- you are in union with a Christ that you don't know savingly. That's the key issue, right? I've often heard it said people usually present the gospel as, as you could, why don't you have a personal relationship with Christ? And I, I was, several years ago, I think it was Michael Horton said, every single person has a personal relationship with Christ. It's just what's the nature of that relationship? Is it, a nature, is it a relationship where he is your savior and redeemer, or is he your judge and executioner? So this is why Paul is saying it's so important when you understand what you're participating here in, you better know him savingly. So that's why we fence the table and say this meal is for those who know Christ as redeemer. So there's a, there's a caution for us, but here's the, here's the good word. For those who are believers, what does this communion mean for us? I put it this way. Eating the meal associated with the resurrected and exalted Christ is actual participation with the resurrected and exalted Christ. And that means that everything that he purchased and accomplished for us the complete obedience to the law of God when we have failed 
the taking of the judgment that we deserve in our place. The pouring out of unmerited forgiveness on all who would come to him. The peace of knowing that you are at peace with the living God. The liberation of the guilt of the ways in which you fail the moral law of God. Every, every spiritual blessing that you could possibly think of, this meal is a reminder of our participation with, him, with Christ and Him pouring out those blessings on us through it. The Lord's Supper is, it's a means. It's a means of grace. It's more than a memory. It is that. But it's a means of grace by which the Holy Spirit pours into the souls of believers all the spiritual benefits of Christ's death, His body and His blood for you. So we are in a move to celebrate that to close our service today. And so with that, a couple of words of announcement before we do. And what we'll do is we'll have you come and you will take the elements and then bring them back to your, to your seats. And then I will do the words of, of institution. Um, the bread in the trays, it looks like regular bread. It's actually gluten-free, egg-free, dairy-free. It's not soy-free. I, I can't keep track of all of the things that need to be. Okay. But then we also have the original ones that we've had, the little the crackers. So choose wisely, I guess. Um, and so uh, in <coughs> with that little disclaimer, uh, then... Uh, and then also, we've no longer socially distanced the elements here. I think um, we're all among brothers and sisters in Christ here. Um, so uh, I will pray, and then I invite you to come up to the table. So let's pray. Father God, we come um, thanking you for your word. We thank you for not only this meal that Jesus has given us, but the ways in which the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of, uh, of your Holy Spirit, to write these words to the church at Corinth about the, the true meaning of our participation in it. God, we thank you that you've equipped us with the means by which you can nourish our hearts and our souls. God, help us here even now in these moments as we contemplate and we're to brainstorm every possible spiritual blessing we have in Christ that we acknowledge that every one that we can think of comes to us and that it does so through this means that you've given. And so, God, we come to your table Grateful and we thank you in Jesus precious name amen and amen brothers and sisters if you are in Christ 
I invite you to stand and come to the table. Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take a breath. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you will, in taking this together, that you have been reminded of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and that all the benefits of his suffering his life, his suffering on a cross, his resurrection and ascension into the right hand of the Father, that all of the blessings that we have through him, that you would be nourished by those this morning. 
And now I invite you to stand as our, for our closing uh, benediction this morning. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we share in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.